Well, welcome everybody to this edition of the Art Business Podcast. And my guest this week is Alicia Livingston, who is the curator and director of Livingston St Ives, which is a contemporary gallery in St Ives in Cornwall, in the southwest of England, for those of you who don't know anywhere outside of London. Um, it's basically a very beautiful place that we visit uh, to go on holiday, uh, beautiful light, beautiful coastline and sea, surfers, it's got a surf culture, it's uh, it's quite a remote area both politically as well as in terms of its archaeology, so um, you know there's a drive for Cornish independence, they have their own Celtic language which is rather wonderful. I like to always tell people when I go down there that my mother's name is Cornish, so I think I probably have some of Cornwall in the blood. That's Alicia laughing. Hi, hi. Ever... hi. Hello everybody, hello Alicia. And, and welcome to the, the the podcast. So, so Alicia began her gallery not in St Ives, but in another beautiful coastal uh, resort in Cornwall, uh, Perranporth, and that was in 2018. And then she opened at St Ives in 2020. And one of the things we're going to do in the podcast is talk about that, but also about current developments and future developments. The reason that I've asked, one of the reasons I've asked Alicia to the podcast is is because I see her as like an emerging gallerist. And this is very good for, for example, my art business students at Sotheby's Institute of Art London, where they're studying the masters in art business. It's very good for them to hear about these more, to look at the art world as it were, through a, through a business, an art business lens uh, for, for, for a change. <laughs> and uh, and the, other, the other reason is that um, Alicia, uh, Alicia kindly hosted myself, my colleagues and my students when we visited St Ives a few weeks ago on a study trip. And uh, she not only, she, she basically welcomed us in in small groups to for a hanging exercise. They were between exhibitions and my students were allowed to select paintings by from the stable of Alicia's artists. And they were allowed to kind of curate them and hang them and uh, photograph them and see what they look like. You can see some film of that on my Instagram at, uh, at Davy without the D, second D Bellingham at Davy Bellingham. By the way, my the reason I don't have David Bellingham on my Instagram handle is because there's an artist who's Scottish called David Bellingham, and we actually have quite a lot of banter together uh, now. So we we exchange quite a lot of kind of Instagram notes. And anyway, anyway, without more ado, I'm going to begin in the usual way by asking Alicia if she could say, you know, Alicia lives in this quite wild place. Americans would call it like a wilderness area, really, of the UK, and UK is a very small place. Um, but I'm going to ask Alicia whether she has a favourite city, and if so, why? Oh, I mean, I have very many favourite cities. Um, I love Miami, and I love uh, Florence, and uh, but, um, and of course, London. But my background is as a, a classicist, um, reading Latin and ancient Greek and teaching. And I think my love of art uh, comes from that. So I'd have to say Rome, Rome for feeling like you're wandering around a museum when you're just having a coffee or going to get something to eat. Absolutely. Well, uh, I think we've spoken about this before, Alicia, but that I'm also a classicist. <laughs> and for similar reasons, I guess Rome is prob probably be my favourite city. I don't think anyone on the podcast to date has said Rome. 
which has surprised okay. me in some ways. They tend to say New York, <laughs> you know, living maybe in a more modernist contemporary world. I, I don't know. But um, as classicists, obviously, Rome is the place. Uh, like, and... I, especially, <laughs> I especially like the modern art that there is in Rome. You Absolutely. Know, yeah. It, it's really fantastic. And it's kind of, it feels curated in a way that the big city, you know, the big kind of um, modern art cities don't don't have and I think I probably like that blend of antiquity and modern that Rome offers. Now indeed and recently of course they have actually uh, opened um, you know several contemporary art spaces and I think there are also growing numbers of contemporary art galleries uh, you know contemporary commercial art galleries in Rome uh, which didn't really used to exist as far as I can see uh, and I, I think one of my alumni is actually uh, in one of those in one of those galleries in in Rome. Uh, Actually, I have even thought of what my favourite spot or object is, and it's the it's the Arapacus, oh, the, yes. the Augustus's altar of peace. And it's not just the altar; I think it's the building that it's in. It's it's kind of small. It's just really that object, that amazing altar. And I, for me, that's the kind of most fabulous bit. I think. Absolutely. And um, yeah, and I mean, the art, the Ara Parkis, uh, just just for the listeners, um, as Alicia says, it's very interesting, actually, archaeologically, because it was discovered under Mussolini, uh, who basically identified himself with the with the Emperor Augustus, the first proper Roman emperor uh, adopted son of Julius Caesar. And uh, he under his rule, he built the Arapacus, which means altar of peace, because he brought peace back to the Roman world. That was his propaganda message uh, after after years of civil war. And uh, they, they excavated it, didn't they, Alicia, under the what is now the Corso, the main shopping drag in Rome. Yes, and yeah. that used to be the Via Flaminia, the ancient Roman road leading to the Capitoline from northeast Italy. And the, the altar obviously stood in a very public place next to that main route. But it's now beneath a bank I think so you know many meters underground where cities kind of rise over the centuries yeah. and so Mussolini actually got the excavators to pick out the marble slabs with these beautiful relief sculptures on and then rebuild it next to Augustus's mausoleum his tomb which survives in Rome which is where Mussolini also wanted to be buried obviously he was never buried there and originally I don't know whether you're whether you went you remember visiting Rome say 20-30 years ago Alicia but it used to be the Arapacus used to be inside a, a fascist architectural case. Wow! Uh, no, I, I don't remember that. Yeah, I, and then they and then they 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 because of its relation to fascism, and it was very controversial because obviously there is still a fascist party in Italy. Uh, they they tore it down and they replaced it with a, a new building uh, designed, if I remember rightly, by Mayer, the the yeah, North it's, American it's like architect. Glass box, That's I right. suppose. And and I I kind of love it because you go inside this glass box to actually see the altar piece but then you can go into the altar itself I think and kind of what could you see in and I think it really brought home to me having read about sacrifice Greek sacrifice Roman sacrifice that you lead the bull you know you lead the animals in and there's room in there to slaughter a bull and you see the grooves where you know, the sand got put down and the blood got washed out. <laughs> and it, it, it's almost like a, you you under, you think of an altar as a kind of, I think I very much thought of it as a kind of tabletop. Yes. But, you know, like an altar in a church, but actually it's kind of, it's very three dimensional and it's almost like 
it is the theater. It's like a theater set, you Definitely. know? I think the, it really brought home the performance aspect of the ritual. And of course, I, I never quite grasped it in this amazing it's position. And David, you're probably the expert on this. It, it, it kind of acts like a sundial. Is this right? Yeah, no, and uh, we, yeah, no, that's quite right. Then, the, and the allusion to sundial is that a German archaeologist, uh, Buchner, in the 1980s, he actually he actually worked out that Augustus conquered Egypt, <laughs> and he brought back obelisks, Egyptian obelisks, to Rome, which we still see there in the in the Baroque city. They were you know, reused by the Baroque popes, and uh, one of one of the uh, obelisks was used as a sundial gnomon or pointer on a big pleasure park that was quite near to the Arapakis, but the top of the shadow of the obelisk ran along this kind of travertine limestone pavement that was marked out with bronze given the time of day. And apparently only on the autumn and spring equinox, the end of the shadow hits the, hit the original steps of the Arapakis in its original position. And the reason for that is because all of this was associated with Augustus and astrology. Um, yes. So, so Augustus was actually born on the autumn equinox, <laughs> which is, oh, in, wow. and he made a big thing about being chosen by the, you know, he was son of a god. He deified his father Julius Caesar, so was son of a god. Yes. So he made this big thing about being, um, and obviously there was a certain another person claiming to be the son of God who was alive at the time of Augustus, Jesus Christ. And there was quite a lot of earlier prophetic Roman poetry by Virgil, for example, that prophesied that a young baby was about to be born who would bring peace. Back to the mm. world. So Augustus's version was the altar of peace, and Jesus Christ, of course, was was a was a hope for love and peace. <laughs> so it's a long, long story that with the Arapakis, but um, people should visit it if they go to Rome. It is an amazing building and monument, a uh, good place to start on ancient Rome. And there's, if I if I remember just, right, Alyssa, yeah. there's a there's a museum below with lots of portrait heads, yes. you know, of emperors and so on. And just behind it on the riverbank, there's a fantastic little kiosk that sells <laughs> it's like the crushed ice with that intense syrup on it. Oh, yes. It's What's that called? Drink to cool down. And I've that's never right. tasted it before. It's I can't awesome. remember what that's called. The, the Italian listeners will know. Is it a frappe or something? I think gratini? it might be a frappe. I think it's a grattini. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> highly well. And of course, you can't, you know, so that's, as you say, that's why Rome's so fantastic, because you, you you just have a wonderfully sensual time eating its wonderful food and drinking its wonderful cocktails and eating its wonderful ice cream. And at the same time, you know, you're, you're actually in a theatre and you're looking at Baroque or ancient Roman architecture everywhere you go. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And, and Alicia, the next question I usually ask people is, outside of cities, do you have a favourite countryside location? Obviously, you, you can say St Ives and why you like St Ives if you like. We might You might want to say that anyway, but would it be St Ives in Cornwall or is there somewhere else where you go in the countryside to escape the city? Well, it would be St Ives and then the, that peninsula of coast from Land's End up to Perrinporth, where I live, that I just don't get fed up with. <laughs> But in the summer, it, it becomes so incredibly busy. We, my husband and I, and my, um, my three children and my two dogs, we take our beautiful old vintage bell tent, a big canvas kind of tent, and we stay at this fantastic little campsite that's just a farm, you know, some fields on a farm, um, near Porth Curnow, where the Minac Theatre is. Yeah. And we meet up with friends and it's just coastline sloping down to the sea and a tiny shop that sells campus essentials and ice cream. And 
it it's it's there's some secret little coves down there and it's the the sounds are just the sounds are the fantastic and the smell and just the sight and I'd have to say that's probably my favorite field on earth <laughs> location yeah I know it I know it quite well I've been to the Minat theater which just for listeners sake the Minat theater is quite a wonderful it's a little bit like an ancient Greek theater or Roman mm. theater sort of like in Cornwall so it's actually open air and set into the side of the cliff like a Greek theater would have been and uh, they put on Shakespeare etc in the summer actually having said that I've never been to a performance have you been to one Alicia oh yes and the best thing is it's always amateur groups normally amateur traveling groups and the ticket price is very low yeah and it's it it feels very authentic because you have to work around the weather and sometimes just as the you know key lines are being delivered some dolphins will jump out in the background and oh, wow. steal the thunder yeah. of the, you know so it's kind of got this very organic nature that it's definitely worth yeah and i mean it gets cold in the evening, but to watch yeah, the sun sure. there, it's wonderful. Do, they do tell you to bring blankets. I mean, I've occasionally been nearly going and then have pulled out of it. But um, yeah, I mean, talking about dolphins, uh, just, just for our listeners say, who don't know Cornwall, um, the, the, the ocean around there is real ocean. I mean, it's the Atlantic waves beating, which is why there's a bit of a surf culture down there as well. Uh, but there's also a lot of wildlife in the sea. And I've seen um, I've seen basking sharks, these very, very large sharks that don't harm human beings. And recently people have sighted humpback whales. Is that correct, Alicia? Yes, I think that's correct. And we also had a visit from the walrus. Ooh. Do you remember the walrus? Who was Wally the walrus? It's never happened before. <laughs> but he went so far as the Isles of Scilly, which is some beautiful, I mean, well worth a visit as well, these beautiful little kind of subtropical islands. Um, there, were, there were lots of Cornish people go on holiday. And, <laughs> and he he got he started heaving himself onto boats because it's what they do they rest on <laughs> icebergs and there weren't any icebergs so after destroying a number of boats by just jumping climbing onto them sinking them <laughs> um, there was a kind of uh, a rescue attempt to draw him away and back back to the, the northern area back back to the north yeah i guess some of them just lose their way i mean even in the thames where i live at kew in west london we i've seen seals quite a lot and sometimes mm -hmm. salmon you know it's uh they but generally speaking they're in the wrong they shouldn't really be up here i think <laughs> yes when you uh, when you walk on the coast path you always feel like you're being watched because if you stop and look out there will always be a seal just watching you which is rather wonderful yeah i think i don't think there's ever been a time when i've uh, walked in on, on the cornwall coast path and i haven't seen seals at some point um, and I've seen dolphins once, but in the distance, and I, I'm not, I, I think they were dolphins, but they might have been porpoises, who knows, doesn't matter, yeah. it was very beautiful. <laughs> and and, and um, Alicia, we, I mean, we could talk about Cornwall for the whole podcast, but moving you're, on. You're selling uh, it very well, you're selling <laughs> it very I, well. I think the listeners... I hope that the listeners like these kind of introductions because I think it gives them a sense of three, it gives them a three dimensional sense of where people working in the art world are kind of coming from, as it were, and that that, as we will see, leads into the type of art, some of the subject matter of the art that you um, that you sell in your gallery, for example. We'll come to that later on. But I was first going to ask you, Alicia, forget, maybe forgetting your own stable of artists, but maybe not. Um, do you? I hate this. People asking me this question, um, but. Uh, and, it, and sometimes it may just be at the moment, what would you say is your favourite work of art 
you know, now. <laughs> so I don't know whether you do have a work of art that you would single out. Were you allowed to take one to a desert island and only one? Um, I... I'm only allowed to take one. Okay, that was that was. Think, <laughs> and it can it can be something like. Is, sorry, go the, the piece I would take is a fantastic large uh, two by three meter four panel um, work of of some dancing leopards by our um, wonderful artist Emily Powell. Oh yes, and, I know Emily. Um, it's 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 so large in a you know in my house in a domestic setting. It kind of feels immersive because I have to put furniture in front of it and like and I I have it in my dining room in front of a uh, baby grand piano that I bought my uh, two daughters as a present this summer for and I I think it gives me so much joy can I take the piano my daughters to the yes of course you're allowed well, to, you're allowed so an I object this little <laughs> setup of um my my five-year-old daughter flora and my uh, 10 year old daughter Antigone and I put the piano on the sand and prop this big painting behind them in the sand and then the the leopards dance along <laughs> as the girls play the piano and it's it's just um a heavenly moment where my kind of my my life my different lives of mother and art lover and gallerist all come together yeah and if i may say so classicist because for the listeners you know flora is the roman goddess of flowers and antigone uh, is the tragic uh, female heroine uh, from the from the eponymous play I think by Sophocles. Sophocles. Yeah. yeah, she's in all three of the plays, the um, Theban trilogy of Tyrannus. Um, right. The reason for her name was at the time I was um, about to give birth, my my best friend Imogen Harris, who's also our um, PR and head of press in our company, was was an actress, and she just was starring in a um, a play called The Antigone, and it, it was always when I grew up, it was the first play I ever read. I think for my GCSEs in ancient Greek. And I just thought she was such a defiant character Absolutely. that Antigone's called Antigone. But sorry to slightly disappoint you, Flora. Art, as well as the art, art um, background to her name, particularly the kind of Botticelli paintings that I love. My husband and I are also runners and we competed in Flora at London Marathon so many times. Oh. Very positive word for us as one of our favourite races. Yes, of course. Yes. And I forgot to tell listeners that um, another string to Alyssa's bow is that she's not just a marathon runner. She's a top marathon and long distance. You know, she does super marathons. <laughs> or used to. I don't know whether you still do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was quite a well-known figure in that athletic world, as I understand it. Um, I just wanted to, just a little personal thing here uh, in, in, in the podcast. Um, during lockdown, I lost two dear friends. One of them, Michael McAfoy, was an actor and, oh. um, and playwright. He wrote a, a version of Antigone, <laughs> which I went oh. to see in the Fringe Theatre in London. Yes. And, um, and it was absolutely wonderful. And um, then my other, another friend who has uh, recently died as a classicist, Neil Faulkner, and he was an, archaeolo uh, an archaeologist, and um, he he named one of his daughters Tiggy, well Antigone, but she became yes. known as Tiggy, so I just wanted yes. to mention them because I, to date, I have never kind of like dedicated anything to them, so maybe I could 
dedicate this podcast. I'm sure Alyssa oh. won't mind to my that's, two of my close nice. friends who died during COVID. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> nice to, to, to remember them here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, and Emily Powell, the artist who created the uh, the four panel work of the Dancing Leopards, um, is one of is one of Alicia's stable of artists at her gallery. And um, maybe maybe that leads us on to, um, maybe we should go rewind a bit, Alicia, and, 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 and ask you, can you, do you have early memories of the concept of art when you were a child? I mean, when did that all begin, your interest in art? Well, I grew up in St. Ives in the 1980s when it was really a grotty old, um, holiday destination that <laughs> fish and chips and buckets and spades and there was I think one art gallery called which was the New Craftsman yes and then the two societies uh, Penwith Society of Artists and the um, St. Ives uh, Society of Artists and I remember um, pre I remember pressing I remember seeing John Maltby's sculptures, little little sculptural forms, I think, and the the jewelry in the New Craftsman, and thinking that was rather wonderful. I I, I was kind of I was thinking it must have been pushed, maybe still in a push chair, but my my parents um moved to Cornwall uh, just before I was born and, and bought a printing company in St. Ives, um, Row the Printers, as, as it was known, and became involved in the art fair, in the St. Ives um, Art Festival. I, I think probably through needing to do printing and printing things for the festival and then being on the committee. And they and my uncle and aunt who also, we lived there, they had a house there, and my other aunt and her husband had a house there. They all collected, um, the kind of St. Ives art of its time, um, particularly artists like Roger Hilton and Terry Frost and um, a wonderful Irish artist called Tony O'Malley and his wife. And I just remembered that when we grew up, there was always a lot of art around. And when I, you know, when I bought my first home or kind of lived, um, in my own house, I was always horrified that my wall, like that you couldn't, you couldn't have blank walls. And, you know, to kind of finish furnishing a home, there must be art and this art must be original. And then the sticking point was that I never had any money <laughs> as I was a teacher to, to put anything on my walls. So I, I think that, that, that my kind of dilemma must have in some ways but I know what I'll do. I'll open an art gallery and I'll have <laughs> art to put on my walls. Without also... having to actually buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I I feel the same way. Uh, people often say to me, you know, do you do you, do you buy art? And I say, well, I, I do sometimes, but I don't really need to because I live with it every day, <laughs> you know, in, in the work I do. Um, such as coming, bringing my students down to St. Ives and seeing not only the, the, the wonderful art in, in your gallery, Alicia, but the other galleries down there. There's a lot of, there's, there's several really, really high-end galleries, I would say, you know, some of them selling more of the, um, the work of the very classic St. Ives artists, uh, uh, Sandra Blow, Patrick Heron, and you, you've already mentioned Frost and, and, and artists like that. Probably not known to a lot of our 
listeners, a lot of our students are international. I remember when we went down to St. Ives, I had to tell them when you're going around, so Tate is obviously the other great place mm. to visit. There is a, I haven't said that yet, actually, we should, we need to say that. There is actually a branch of Tate Gallery in St. Ives, and there's one in Liverpool, and there's one in St. Ives. So that, that shows the importance of St. Ives as an artistic colony, a community. Uh, we yes. won't go into that now, but it does, the reason it's, it's so important for art is because it goes way back to the 19th century with what we call the Newlyn School of Artists who, who worked on the same peninsula and then in and, and, and I think often near Penzance at Newlyn on the northern side and then I would say St Ives develops big time after World War One is that right Alicia? Yes between between the wars with a few figures being there and the kind of desire to not be in London I, I think from the, the wars yeah. and through just some chance encounters people Absolutely. Yeah, and, and again, um, one when when I took the students down, we visited the Porth, Porthmere Studios, and 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 uh, with the the lovely uh, Chris Hibbert, who who directs the studios there, and he was he was we were talking to some of the current artists there, and he was telling us that you're now in the studio that Patrick Heron painted in. So that gives our international and particularly American listeners uh, some information. Patrick, Her uh, sorry, Roth, sorry, I'm getting it wrong. Rothko, <laughs> Mark Rothko. Delete yes. Patrick did, he, Heron. He, did he come to visit Patrick Heron? I think I've seen possibly. Yeah, because Pat, yeah, exactly. Patrick Heron's some of his work looks quite. I always I often refer to Patrick Heron as a happy Rothko because he does yes, similar kind yes. of horizontal bands of color in, in in one stage of his abstract art, and a lot of people think it's Rothko, but it isn't. It's Patrick Heron. Yes. But Roth, anyway, Mark Rothko was in one of those studios, and also Francis Bacon, the great yes. Irish artist who who moved to London. Uh, so you know, there's a there's a uh, sorry that sounds a bit sexist. I'm just trying to. There must have been some, and of course, well, let's let's mention Barbara Hepworth as the other great yeah, I mean, artist a, um, working in Sydney. Barbara Hepworth is actually quite inspirational to mention, as she's, you know, in the 1950s, she is, you know, living and working in St Ives in a fantastic studio and gardens that's now preserved and run by the Tate, and creating huge kind of pieces out of metal and stone, while at the same time bringing up her triplets. And I, I find, you know, kind of remarkably ahead of her time. I think, you know, and just I mentioned having triplets and even trying, you know, and being expected to look after them. <laughs> and then coming, you know, having this kind of huge, you know, thought world that she was turning into physical reality. And I, I believe that the triplets sometimes appear in her art. I think even in that studio mm. you just referred to, Alicia, there's there's this beautiful miniature group of um of like white stone abstract sculptures you know typical Hepworth and I think many people think that there's there's three of them and there are slightly different characters to suggest the characters of her young triplets yeah and I think I see but maybe as a mother I'm kind of seeing projecting this into her work which are many of those kind of circular forms and the kind of spheres within spheres whether they're in positive or negative space but you kind of have this idea of motherhood and I I I, I don't I don't know is she one of the first female sculpt sculptresses of her to work on such a large scale i i i think it would be difficult to th i can't think of any others that are quite working on that scale and of course now i, I remember actually in the nine in the early 1980s birkbeck college in london asked me to do a short course on gender 
in art. Mm -hmm. And for the case study, I chose Henry Moore and Barbara Hepworth. Henry Moore mm -hmm. at the time was far more famous than, you know, very few people had heard of Barbara Hepworth, to be honest, mm -hmm. not, not in, you know, or in the kind of general world. And I remember looking at the bibliography for both of them, and there was hardly any, there were no monographs, hardly any monographs on Hepworth at that point, and there were loads on more. And yeah. over the last 50 years, of course, we've seen 30 to 40 years, I'm not that old, um, you know, we've seen, a. I think Barbara Hepworth is now ahead of Henry Moore in terms of international fame. Uh, you know, yeah. she's, got, she's got a wonderful work in front of the uh, UNESCO building in New York and, you know, her works as, Henry Moore is all over the world as well, but certainly yes. she's up there alongside him, if not ahead of him at the moment. Yes. And, and so I, oh, I definitely think that that little gardens with all the sculptures in is is a oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Oh, and, and and Alyssa, we I took the, we took the students there in small groups, and you know mm. the same groups that came into your gallery to hang. And and one we did the drawing exercise, so uh, they all learnt to draw the sculptures. <laughs> and um, I handed out uh, whenever I come down to St Ives with the students, I I buy these packs of miniature watercolor paper. And at the end of the drawing exercise, I ask, I give them one each and, you know, it's literally like two inches by one inch and they all do a little drawing of a sculpture. And then we, we, we're going to create a collage on one panel and hang in our institute back in Bedford Square in London as a memento of the visit. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's wonderful. <laughs> and anyway, so, so moving on from that, uh, uh, maybe you can now start talking about when, can you remember when you first thought, well, you've already talked about maybe I'll make, maybe I'll have an art gallery one day and then I, I'll be surrounded by art. Uh, and but maybe you could talk in more detail about how you've started the gallery in Perrinporth, Alicia. Sure. So I started my gallery in Perrinporth in September 2018. And it's a, a sleepy little village on the north coast, but with a fantastic beach. And it's about half an hour from St. Ives, um, just over half an hour. And I thought, this is a great idea. There's no other gallery here. And um, I'll be able to, to have this kind of destination and whichever artists I, I want, I can represent. So I, I rented this huge premises with beautiful glass fronted windows and put, chose some artists and put some work up on the walls and waited for people to come. <laughs> and we, we also did more furniture and soft furnishings um, and books and cards. And month by month, put on increasingly fantastic shows of art. And even though people in a nearby village said, I'll eat my hat if she sells a single thing there. Um, we, did, we did sell art, not very much, but um, we did sell art there, but it, I remember it's a fantastic show of one of our artists, Henrietta Dubray and Steve Lavis. And I put on this fantastic exhibition of wonderful paintings. And in the, um, we got a write-up in the Western Morning News, which is a regional newspaper that has an arts feature by um, the arts journalist, Frank Roermond. And he, he said, it's a fantastic exhibition. It's well worth a detour. And meaning a detour, as in from St. Ives. And it was such a, it kind of hit the mark. And I thought, yes, it's very hard to get people to come to anything. And we're just a detour. So I made up my mind that 
if we were going to continue to represent these fantastic artists who um, I wanted to represent, we, we needed to be in St. Ives. And the, all, all the things that I felt were strengths, like there weren't any other galleries around, were in fact actually, I think, a weakness to my business model that being among the other 72 galleries of St. Ives or however many there are if you count today is actually um, good for my business because people come and visit because all the art's there. Um, it means you have to be, you, you need to be uh, dynamic and you need to be kind of, you know, you need to fight for your market share. But if you're willing to be actually being with like with other businesses in your industry is, 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 is can make you strong. And, but the one plus side was that in Perrinpores, because not, none of our, there were no other galleries there, it was deemed far enough away from St. Ives and Penzance and Falmouth, which are other towns that do have um, art galleries, that we were able to invite a fantastic stable of artists to join us, which meant that when we finally got to St. Ives um, and we found a, a beautiful gallery space on 4th Street, um, it was uh, two, so this is kind of in the middle of lockdown, and it was um, in the, it was being two, these two fishing two fishing cottages that had been this kind of strange little antiques emporium were being um, opened up to a kind of I mean still small but had much more sense of space and um, openness. So we 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 signed the lease for these little premises, and when we kind of finally got rid of the builders, um, which always takes longer than you think. We we really hit the ground rolling in October October 2020, and I I say hit the ground rolling. We hit the ground rolling for about 31 days until we had a November lockdown, and then we had another. 21 great days before we got locked down again um, for, for Christmas. Um, and then finally kind of got rolling in uh, when we reopened on April, 2021. So, so the kind of transition in that part of my business was a very, um, I kind of think of it like, you know, like a, a box is doing a lot of sidestepping and reacting. It, it felt like a very kind of reactive, um, time to do business in because you've got lockdowns when you were expecting them and when you weren't expecting them and you know the, the model has got to your business model I think needs to be very agile um, so that you can change it when you need to. Absolutely and uh, I don't know about you Alicia but I when I wake in the morning I'm an early waker and uh, I, I wake up five and I always listen to Wake Up to Money, which is on BBC Radio 5 Live. And it it had stories all through the pandemic. It's so interesting. It's, it'd be very good for my students to listen to. They probably wouldn't get up at 5 a.m., but they can listen to These days you can kind of listen to it later in the day. But it's brilliant because you hear ordinary people in ordinary businesses, uh, such as yours. That I'm not saying you're an ordinary person, but you know what I mean, small businesses, uh, as not just the, the big international corporates. And they're talking about, you know, the, the problems and solutions that they had to cope with during these different lockdowns. And it struck me what an amazingly creative group of people we have in, in, in Great Britain, uh, you know, in those, in those small businesses in particular, and how they coped and survived with this. So maybe you could say a little bit more about, you know, you talked about the agility of your 
of your, you know, how did you face up to those problems of suddenly not selling your pro, you know, not being able to sell your products? And what about your outgoings during the lockdowns? Well, it was very interesting that I think in some ways the the lockdown was the I don't want to say the savior of my business. Mm. I want to say it was my eureka moment because when we got told to close our doors on the first lockdown, I very much had a, a sense that my business and my clients were going to come from walking through the door. And, you know, whether, and I thought the issue was I was in Perimpors and they would walk through the door if I was in St. Ives. And I think that's true to an extent, but when I closed that door in Perimpors, definitely no one was going to walk through the door. So I, I had to think really deeply and, and think, okay, well, how am I going to get my art, this art to, just to, for people to see? And although we had an Instagram account and we had a, Facebook account and we did mail, you know, mailing um, emails out. I, I, I started um, using social media for paid advertising, which meant I could reach many more people much more quickly. And I, I stopped kind of waiting for people to come to me and started thinking, how can I get the art to the people? And I think that was a real turning point and that I stopped thinking of us as a gallery. And really, I kind of think of my business, my, my colleagues, myself and the work that we do as kind of agents or promoters for the artists we represent. And I, I think, okay, well, what else can we do? How else can we do that? And um, so at the time it was, you know, through social media advertising, um, this year, with a new website coming out, um, with a much much a smoother kind of client journey through the website, we're really focusing on using video um, as a as a way. So making kind of short videos, sometimes with voiceovers or with music, for people to be able to look to view a painting um, rather than as an image, as a kind of dynamic image. And I, I so that's I think one eureka moment that I, I had in, in the lockdown. And the other thing that changed my business um, was actually having that lockdown grant. And I think we had, oh, I think on my size of business, I, I got a 25,000 pound grant um, from, the, from the government for to cover the period I was closed. And up to that point, I'd found it so difficult to access finance to start up a business. And the finance I had been able to achieve was crippling at, I think, 12% interest rates. And all the things you need to do to grow your business, you, you need money for. And that, that very small grant allowed me to invest in my marketing, invest in my advertising. And, and that helped me put my idea into practice. It was, it was a kind of bittersweet moment because if I hadn't have had that, I don't know if I would have been able to do the things I wanted to do to grow my business. And it, 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 it made me feel, I mean, I was delighted, but also I thought how many small businesses 
just want some, just need some financial help, you know, just need some better interest rates, loans to get going, or some kind of grant incentive um, investments. Um, so I was lucky that both those two things happened at the same time. And when you started in St Ives and then the, you know, then the lockdown comes in pretty immediately, did you already, had you already employed some staff? Yes, um, we, we'd employed extra staff and the, the furlough scheme was a godsend. I was about um, to say. Yeah, yeah and um, in fact, probably as a regional business, um, we slightly benefited from it as our footfall does drop off, especially January, February. But we were able, we were able to uh, keep all our staff on and keep them on um, good salaries, um, and that was a that was a blessing. As you know, whatever we were worrying about and struggling with as a business, you know, my um, in the same way, like you know, a lot of um, especially young people who I I employ a lot of young people in their twenties there's not there's very little kind of um they don't have big savings accounts and it you know without that furlough it would have been very uh um it would have been very um unsettling to the to the economy and to people's livelihoods especially in Cornwall where there aren't like there aren't so many jobs out of season yeah indeed and uh, I've I've met some of your uh, staff when we were down in St Ives. Uh, uh, Luke is your um, mm -hmm. charming co. Is he? Is he a? What, what's his title? His, his, he, if he's listening, um, I think he's our, he's my assistant curator. Assistant curator. So Luke I is the so. assistant curator. Yes, he's got he's got Luke has got the eye. And <laughs> when I when I employed him at the time, we didn't actually need another pair of hands per se. And my my business partner who's um my kind of finance director said mm -hmm. what another person who is this <laughs> who is this and I said it's Luke and he said what does Luke do I said Luke has the eye <laughs> so <laughs> I trust him implicitly <laughs> and financial directors that's exactly the language they want to hear isn't it Yes, the yes. art, the language of art, <laughs> and then then I met Will, who 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 was the uh, the technician. I think might be the yes, Will's our installation technician, mm. and um, I think of him as my luxury in that <laughs> for the first two years in business, I had to hang all the paintings myself and take them down and put them up and put them in an out storeroom, and it it's that classic. Um, I don't know, it's that classic line that you're too busy working in your business to work on your business. So, so as we grew and I was able to um, employ uh, brilliant people to do all these aspects that I was doing myself, you know, like the front of house role, the hanging, the curating, I mean, not to mention the operations of packing and sending, which is time consuming and tricky um I was able to kind of take a more active overview in driving the business forward like where do we want to go where do we want to be yeah and uh the, the talking about logistics like packing and transporting you know we have a we have our own master's degree in logistics who also came down to St Ives with us uh they that is something you do yourself presumably or or do you outsource yes. any of that we we do a lot of it in-house 
We, um, but we also use a third party couriers, um, three lanes, who, who specialize in art transport. They transport all the art around for the tape, um, for example. And so we, we have a mix of uh, DHL for small packages, local deliveries, regional deliveries, and this um, courier. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, I think I, I haven't met her yet, but I think you've got another staff member, Katie, who's been emailing me about our plans to bring the students down again in November, yes. possibly so put on. Yeah, go on. Yes, so Katie um, has a new role. Um, she was front of house when she was greeting people when they come in, but she was so busy, it was really hard to do two things. Sorry, that's just an artist in a studio to the right hand side of doing something in that studio. And so she, um, Katie puts our exhibitions together. So um, we've got a, uh, two exhibitions, kind of big exhibitions on at the moment. In our St Ives Gallery, we have um, Emma Williams, who has beautiful still lifes, window scenes of St Ives. Um, and we have uh, 42 paintings of hers in her um, 2022 solo exhibition currently on show. So Katie liaises with Emma ahead of the exhibition to make sure everything's photographed and catalogued. Um, everything, the price structure has got to be correct due to size. Um, the, the paintings go to the framers, they come from the framers to the gallery. Um, the paintings are hung, but at the same time, everything goes online onto our website. And um, Katie kind of puts the shows together online. Sort of exhibition planner, I think is her title. The exhibition planner, so she liaises with the, um, something we've brought in this year was to be more organized and to um, have the images of the artworks um, two weeks ahead of the exhibition. So, so one of our um, fantastic emerging artists who um, I think you, you, you met at the um, talk, Jack Davis. Oh yes. Has a monumental 22 um, solo exhibition, which is going to be in two locations um, and launches next Saturday. It's, it's so big, we're renting an extra space, we're renting the crypt which is a big exhibition space under St Ives uh, Society of Artists for the first two weeks. And then a second part of the exhibitions coming to our Fall Street Gallery. And I think there are some, there are probably around 80 paintings um, in that exhibition. So uh, Katie is responsible for um, making sure they're photographed and catalogued correctly and all the images are online. And that exhibition um, is available to view virtually as well as in real life. Yeah, and so listeners should look out for that on the on Alicia Livingston's on the on the lit well, the, the the website. Just just search Alicia Livingston St Ives, and you'll find yes. it on the website. Yes, yeah. it's, uh, Jack, Jack's the most fantastic painter of um, big dramatic seascapes and skyscapes. Um, they're really rather extraordinary. So yes, your listeners should really check that out. <laughs> and and apropos which, we haven't said much about. We'd said a little bit about your artist. You, you referred to Emily Powell earlier. And one of one of the one of the common features, as it were, uh, common to both Emily and Jack, is is uh, is is that it's a lot of what they're doing is quite local. It's about the sea. It's about the wonderful Cornish um, skyscapes and landscapes. Is that the kind of work that people want to buy from you when they're in St Ives? I, I think that work, the paintings that connect to 
the um, environment to the to the particular um, landscape and seascape of uh, St. Ives are, um, are really popular in St. Ives. And I think that's because a lot of people come there um, as a holiday and, that, and it's their sanctuary or it's their escape from the rest of their lives. It's their favorite place. And I think that the desire to buy a painting that somehow contains this, or uh, when you take it home, you're able to connect to that place that you love is a big factor in, the, in a lot of our sales here. Yeah, and um, then from that, I believe that you're, you've already moved indeed to, you've opened up another gallery, almost like a third gallery, uh, yes. her important yes. Ives, and now, now could you say about the Clifton Gallery? Could you yes. talk about that? So, so one, what, something that really um, emerged out of the lockdown was that we started um, selling online and we started selling via kind of video call um, and people were able to purchase without visiting. And it really made us, it really, and then when we reopened, through our social media advertising that had gone on in lockdown, lots of people rushed in and said, oh, I'm so excited to visit you. I, they, wait, they kind of clutched their phone and said, I saw this online and I wanted to come and see. And it was interesting that we thought, yes, we, it's fabulous being a destination, but we really are so far away from most of our clients that apart from our local clients, um, if you're if you live beyond Exeter, which I would think is about ninety nine percent of your listeners, David, yeah. um, we, it's not a, we, you can't day trip to us. You yeah. need an overnight accommodation. That probably means it's a weekend. It's expensive on the train, um, or you need a car. And we thought well, these po people probably only come once a year or mm. twice a year. And we thought, well, actually, if we if we had a outpost kind of outside of Cornwall, we could we could be visited more often. Or if people are thinking about trying paintings or they want to see them before they buy, it's not a huge commitment of time and money to 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 come. And so we we kind of looked around and I thought because my children are still small. London's too much for me. Um, it, it's not day trippable and it's too far. And my, my colleague who was at university, um, who'd been at university at Bristol, was keen to move back. And we kind of looked at Bristol or uh, and Bath and that area. Now my, my brother, who is uh, has a gallery, a fabulous gallery called Eight Holland Street, um, was about to reopen in Bath, and we soon both thought that might be a bad idea <laughs> to both be there. <laughs> so um, we we our initial idea was Clifton, and then we looked at Bath, and then we thought maybe no, 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 and. Um, <laughs> We, we just fell in love with, I hadn't been to Bristol for, for a few years actually, and I, I fell in love with this kind of Clifton, which is a, um, a kind of village hamlet in the city, which is beautiful. It feels very much like a Chelsea, away from Chelsea, and um, lucked into finding a beautiful um, 
a, a townhouse, Georgian townhouse, that was the uh, over kind of um, four, uh, six floors that was the exact opposite of two funny old 15th century um, fishing cottages. It was, you know, it's very elegant. It's, uh, it's all painted white. It's a very kind of um, smart space. And we, we love that contrast to show the art in two different ways. And um, we, when we were making that business plan, we looked at the last um, 500 people who purchased from our gallery and plotted all those addresses on, on maps. And it was interesting that there was a huge, you know, that actually that kind of band across the South Southwest, a huge band of our clients were within 70 miles, 50 miles of Bristol, mm -hmm. but nowhere near us. So we took the, the um, I won't say rash decision, but sometimes I feel all my decisions, we took the bold decision to open the gallery there and we opened last November. That's right. And it sounds as though you've done your, what my students learn to do, their SWOT analysis and their PESTLE analysis. Yes. You know, looking yes. at all the, the, the strengths, weaknesses, offices, opportunities, threats, as well as the kind of broader economic. And you've done, you've looked at your map and looked at, you know, what distance will people come from? And uh, yes. uh, do, do you have any plans to, actually, before we, uh, yeah, yeah, before we come back to St. Ives, because uh, uh, I know you've got another project ongoing there, um, have you any plans one day to open in London? Would that, would that work for your? Yes, mm. yes. I do. I hope my husband's not listening. <laughs> um, yes. Or your I've, financial advisor. <laughs> oh, no. No, don't tell him. Um, yes, I would very much like to be, um, I would like to be somewhere along the King's Road or just off the King's Road. But I think at the rate my business is growing, I feel it's a bit like buying shoes for a teenage boy whatever <laughs> pair of expensive trainers I buy now will be probably outgrown quite quickly so I'm just <laughs> trying to kind of hold and um you know work, work on the position that we're in and let us grow a bit so that we can find the space that will continue to be the right space for us. Actually, my, my experience of a teenage boy in trainers is it is probably going to be the wrong brand <laughs> as opposed oh, to the right. wrong size. Yes, definitely <laughs> ask them. Definitely ask them. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that sounds interesting. And, and then and then I was that that segues quite nicely, you know, because I remember Belgrave Gallery being one of the top galleries um, uh, in, 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 that had a branch in St. Ives and uh, they uh, I think they were called uh, so. So Michael Gatcher, whom, whom we met, uh, and then met and was there when when you were on the panel with Emily, uh, the art uh, and Jack, the artist at the Hotel Dragena, the Dragena Castle. Mm -hmm. um, we we had a big panel discussion there, which, which kindly uh, Alicia hosted, and she she had her two artists there, Jack and Emily, but also invited Michael Gatcher, who who is the director of um, Belgrave Gallery, and I think it was called Belgrave Gallery because it used to be in Belgravia in London, but yes. now. He's in the most opposite place to Belgravia, London, you could think about, which is like a, a, a beautiful little village two miles from the centre of St. Ives called Tewednak. Is that the right pronunciation? Tewednak, yes. Yeah. yeah, and I think, I believe that you might be thinking of moving there as well. 
Yes, I'm actually here right now. So <laughs> that's where um, you're speaking from. <laughs> so, so to describe this, this is um, a beautiful old uh, courtyard of barns and piggeries and stables um, <laughs> next to a farmhouse and um, high up on the kind of wild moorland above St Ives, it's a kind of rocky granite outcrop. Sort of Wuthering Heightsy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's windy today. I don't know if you can hear. It's very windy. Yeah, and I could also, <laughs> by the way, I could also hear the what I call rubber band plane that was obviously flying to the silly isles that takes off from near where you are. Sure, probably, sorry. So Michael um, had a, a beautiful gallery on 4th Street and ooh, about in 20, September 2020. That's right. Yeah, I remember. Decided to um, step back from the kind of front line and his he had his storage unit here and just and, sh and like a kind of private showroom so decided to kind of pull his business out as he was he'd been there for 15 years and uh, had a wonderful kind of client base and so he operates from um studio and storage spaces on this on this farm which is which is run by our couriers the three lanes art transport and we, because we were stepping, we our lease came up in Perrinforce, at which was the least profitable um, kind of part of our business. And um, we felt that, but also it comprised all our kind of operations and storage. We felt that it made sense to move that. And I, I really stress in the kind of art business, um, how how important your kind of operations are for the kind of after sales or what happens once someone's paid. It takes a lot of time and, and space. Um, and so we decided to, to join Michael um, by taking studio space and storage space on that farm. Uh, Michael's also a good friend and I, I love popping in to see his 20th century collection. <laughs> um, so it might be my downfall financially, but um, we're eight minutes from St. Ives. So if someone comes into our gallery and wants to see something, and it's not currently on show, we can get it down quite quite quickly. Or our clients can come and visit us um, in our very relaxing private showroom space away <laughs> from the hustle and bustle. You, you sell it very well. <laughs> it sounds wonderful. I, I hope that we can get down there when we're when we're back down in November. Uh, Fantastic. With next year's students. And we we we're, we're hoping to do something quite ambitious when we come in November and help by Alicia and, and Katie and Will and Jack. Um, oh, sorry, not Jack, Will, Will and Luke. Um, uh, no, no, Jack might be involved anyway. But um, we, we, we might, we, we're, we're hoping to actually let the students actually hang works from, from artists, uh, you know, linked to Alicia, but also to try selling them over a couple of days. So we've, we've hired a kind of pop-up gallery and uh, Katie, your, your uh, exhibitions planner mm -hmm. has helped us to find another space and I think some of them will be in your gallery so if any if any listeners are down in um, St Ives I think it would be probably the end uh, the 11th and 12th of November it's a really nice time to visit St Ives because it's outside of the kind of very busy sort of seaside season um, but we I, I don't promise it but that's what we're aiming for isn't it Alicia? Yes, like, like a, a kind of November mini festival Absolutely. another art festival I think it's yeah. going to be exciting it, it will be exciting and um and, and and then hopefully to 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 catch up with you out at um to Ednac and maybe walk some students out there and, uh, and and see see michael and belgrave gallery there as well 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it. The more I think about where where you are and the the the, the wonderful people that you know down there, both artists and gallerists. Um, Alicia, I, I, the, the, I just need to point this out that the music that, I, that forms the intro and outro, as they're called on podcasts for, for my podcasts, uh, is, is actually uh, by Top Taylor, uh, who, who, who used to be the co-director of Rifle Maker Gallery in Soho, which was a really famous gallery. It closed down about three years ago. It, basically, the rates in London were so high. Uh, yes. But it was it was a it was a top gallery with amazing exhibitions. Top used to work with um, people like Yoko Ono and Judy Chicago in kind of revivals oh. of their work, uh, whom I met, and it was you know it's absolutely fantastic. And um, uh, but he he during lockdown he moved from London down to he comes from the West Country and he moved to Penzance and he recorded an album because he used to be in the music industry in London and the album's called Frisbee and it's well worth listening to on Spotify. It's kind of deliberately retro and analog, but it's very catchy. And um, the, the the track that I play is uh, one of his top singles from, from the from the record called Baby I Miss the Internet, which is actually a critique of um, Donald Trump, who <laughs> once apparently told Top, uh, sorry, who once Top saw on an interview, uh, they were saying, well, what happens if the internet turns against you, Mr. Trump? And he said, I'd close it down. <laughs> so Top was imagining a world without the internet. And that's what that wonderful song's all about. Anyway, uh, the other thing, the other thing about Top, so he, he's been, he, I think he's still down near Penzance somewhere in some recording studio, studio in a beautiful uh, Riverside location. He, he wrote a novel called The Story of John Knightley, which is partly set from the early music industry, the pop music industry in the 60s and 70s in London. And then he moves down, the lead character moves down to your, you know, somewhere near Zenor, which is where oh, you know, Jack yes. lives. And, and, uh, and he, has a he has a big recording studio in this kind of tropical paradise. And he records this amazing requiem. Uh, so, that, so it's just oh, interesting wow. the way these, all of these different arts always come back to Cornwall in my, in, you know, mm -hmm. in my, my life anyway, <laughs> the people that I've known. Uh, there, so so that's great, uh, um, Alicia. I was just going to maybe we could finish finish up by um, thinking a little bit about the 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 future. Do you so so basically that you've got your Bristol Gallery and you I think you closed Perrinporth now, haven't you? Um, yes, I have just uh, come from there, sweeping the last <laughs> bits of uh, dust. We've we've closed that gallery um, as of as of tomorrow. Yeah, was that sad? It was sad, but I I think of it, it was, um, so we were there for three years and I kind of feel it was my business degree in art business. <laughs> I foolishly didn't do the Sotheby's um, <laughs> School of Art, MA in Art Business before I opened my gallery. I, I wish I had. It would have been much cheaper than the learning lesson. <laughs> I'm not saying about that. You haven't asked my students about their fees. It was it's half the price, I think, of the okay. lesson that I, I learned. No, it's but very good value. It um got me to, to where I needed to be. And um it's actually all the mistakes I made there that um over the last, you know, I mean, especially in the first and second year of my business, the the wrong decisions, the bad planning, the they were all those things are the things that allow or the, the learning from that allowed us to hit the ground running in St. Ives and grow in lockdown and um you know feel you know 
dynamically ambitious. So I, I, I feel a bit like, uh, you know, the university that you leave behind, <laughs> like kind of nostalgic, but also ready for the future. A sort of practice run, Perrin Paul. Mm -hmm. I think so. So um, we looking forward, you know, on the on the short term, um, we're very focused on the kind of the, the 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 gallery year, and this is our first very busy week in Cornwall. Uh, Bristol's busy too with footfall, and we launch into our spring summer um, exhibitions with some fantastic solo shows um, that I'm really looking forward to. Um, later in the year, there's two particular exhibitions I'm really excited to be planning at this stage. Um, one is a it's a kind of a retrospective. It's it's the exhibition is a, a, a group of kind of very um, monochrome, either black or white paintings, but um, abstract paintings by Henrietta Dubray, who we mostly represent as a figurative artist, but these but she's also a fantastic abstract artist. And these paintings were painted, um, I mean, over the last twenty years. I think they range from twenty twenty three. Uh, sorry. 2003 to um, to last year, and um, we're we're looking so looking forward to showing that as a collection of abstract work. Um, there's also uh, Ken Spooner, who's one of my favourite um, artists. I I don't know what you call his work. It's figurative and abstract and dynamic and beautiful. And um, he it's his 80th this year. Oh, and then we're having a major exhibition later in the year of, of new and old paintings of his that I'm really excited by. So those are kind of those are my short term plans. And um, uh, in amongst that, Emily Powell is launching her her first book that Macmillan are publishing. Um, it's it's you know going to be enormous. I think it's going to five million copies worldwide and that comes out in June so we're really looking forward to the kind of gosh I don't know what's going to happen <laughs> like she's already very very well loved and well known so there's going to be a huge kind of burst of energy um then and then our, our longer term plans are to um have a, a permanent premises in London and then um I think as as I left it Octi and Octi, who's my assistant director, and Luke um, are very keen to open a New York branch. <laughs> but Katie and Will are trying to say that they could run Miami. So <laughs> we are kind of thinking the world is our oyster. We're going to um, see where we go. But then LA and then Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Traveling I don't know. The world. I, 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 yes, um, it would be fun. I think as we as we feel more confident doing. Um, doing our business that we you begin to think it doesn't have to be retail space to have a gallery sure. um, you know that there are kind of other ways of showing work I know you know there's a lot of virtual ways yeah. but also you know you you know houses um, you know domestic settings pop-ups yeah I mean that that's the big thing at the moment like JD Mallet that I did an mm -hmm. earlier podcast with and last podcast was with one of their new artists Georgia Dimmer I mean they they uh and Kojo Marfo I did a podcast mm -hmm. that's one of their artists with um he's he's doing really well in in London but uh he then did really he then had a sellout show as a kind of satellite at Miami Basel uh last last 
mm. winter and um, they're, they're putting him in a pop-up in Manhattan so basically yeah. you only need to kind of like rent a space for like a couple of weeks and you can sell your artists and I, I'm, I'm sure that the whole St Ives the whole romantic aspect and wild and beautiful Celtic aspect of St Ives would do really well in New York yes yeah that's really interesting um yes I mean I'm kind of everyone's laughing because I'm, I'm sitting in this little um it's a kind of gallery office space that's <laughs> converted piggery but it's, it's actually part of a whole courtyard of little galleries and uh, mm. of little studios with this beautiful big barn at the back it, it's a kind of um a mini um sorry what's that gallery in uh Dorset. Hauser and Worth in Somerset. It's like a mini Hauser and Worth. Yeah. I think. Gosh, that barn would make lovely galleries. Yeah, so. I mean Hauser and Worth is an example of a, a top, you know, international commercial gallery. Uh, Dea Vanagan, one of my alumni, is the uh, is the marketing manager there. <laughs> Bless her. And um, that that's a converted farmyard, obviously. And and, and it sounds yeah. as though this is the new this is the new art this is the new art gallery, isn't it? That is going to move out to the countryside. Yes, I mean I think it's interesting that. Um, Obviously, as well as our gallery, I'd probably consider Michael in the Belgrave as the other best gallery yeah. in, in Cornwall. And I think <laughs> it's funny that, or in sometimes that we're both also here on this little farmyard. And yeah. um, definitely, you know, I mean, if you imagine what our storerooms are like, it, there are so many treasures in there. Yeah. And they're, you know, just out, just out of town. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of Marie Antoinette all over again, isn't it? <laughs> back, back to the countryside, back to the idyllic countryside. Um, anyway, uh, Alicia, I'm, I'm suddenly looking at the clock thinking, my God, that time went very quickly. Oh, and, uh, it was a pleasure. Yeah, no, and so I'd like to thank you on behalf of... Um, of all of the, the listeners as well. I'm sure they're going to really enjoy listening to this. So certainly I hope it transports them into a, this, this other world of, uh, of, of St. Ives and Cornwall. And, and if you've never been down there, uh, do, do, do go there uh, and um, hopefully you'll have good weather. But it really, honestly, the light and the sun and the colours and the archaeology, uh, the, 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 the general feeling that you're in a kind of um, romantic other world is it's really quite palpable when you get there it's quite hard to explain to anyone but do go down there and do do uh, do go and visit uh, Alice's uh, Livingston Gallery it's called in Four Street which is one of this, this beautiful little sort of semi-pedestrianized uh, road running running down to the beach in, in St Ives with all these uh, rather wonderful shops in it so thank you very much again Alicia for, for being our guest today Thank you, you're welcome. I look forward to seeing you in uh, later in the year. Fantastic. Okay.